Hello listeners everywhere! Welcome to the Archive of Audio Antiquities, a voyage into the vault of wonders on the wireless. In a moment, Simon Exton and Ken Moss will be here to speak to you. Hello everyone and a very warm welcome back to the Archive of Audio Antiquities. I'm Ken Moss. I'm Simon Exton. And this time we've got a festive feel because we're listening to the Paul McGann Doctor Who audio story, The Chimes of Midnight. Oh, it is marvellous. This is one of my annual staple re-listens. I absolutely adore it, and I'm not going to make any pretense that I'm going to come into this objectively. I absolutely adore this. It's one of the best things, as far as I'm concerned, ever committed to audio, and it's just Christmas distilled, as far as Doctor Who's concerned. Well, Charlie, where are we? I don't know, Doctor. It's too dark. You were supposed to be getting me to Singapore, you know. 1930, remember? An Edwardian Christmas. How lovely. Hmm. I never much liked plum pudding. Cook always used to make far too much of it. And we were still picking our way through it by New Year. Oh, I love a bit of plum pudding, though. Charlie, there'll be a death here soon. Edith, what are you saying? Who's dead? I can make you warmer than that fire ever could. Can't you just leave it, I said. I only wanted a kiss been your favourite ever since you were a little girl. It certainly has. You'll make me plum pudding forever, won't you? Even when I'm grown up. (laughs) There'll be another murder soon and everyone will forget me. Don't you forget me, Charlie. Oh. Mr Shaughnessy, you're pointing a gun at us. Yes, sir. That's not a very nice way for a well-bred butler to behave, is it? You are not to go upstairs. It is not our place. We only go upstairs when we are summoned. Please, don't leave me here on my own. Doctor? Doctor, where are you? Of course, it's not proof. I mean, I suppose I could be lying when I said I didn't kill her. Oh, yes. As of course could I. Stands to reason. Once you've committed murder, a bit of fibbing is hardly going to bother your conscience, is it? It's mocking us. Whatever this force is, it's mocking us. The TARDIS materialises in an Edwardian larder in 1906, and they step out, they have a wander around the kitchen, which is all in darkness. And then, gradually, time starts phasing in and out, and Charlie slips into a kitchen where there is somebody. It's the same kitchen, but it's all lit up and somebody's in it. And then they slip back, and time freezes and unfreezes, and then the kitchen staff arrive. It's very difficult to describe what goes on in The Chimes of Midnight, because it's all about time looping and a series of events. It purports to be a murder mystery, where there's a scullery maid found drowned in a sink, and the Doctor and Charlie are immediately recognised as amateur sleuths. 
This changes to Scotland Yard operatives as the story develops, and there are other murders which are then painted as suicides, although they're completely implausible. There's a cook who stuffs herself full of plum pudding and puts coins on her eyes. There's a chauffeur who drives over himself with everybody that's in the house stuck in this four-hour time loop, but living different four hours every time the clock chimes midnight. Eventually, it's revealed as a temporal paradox. It's all resolved. Happy days. Which is a very boring outline of what this story is about, but it's absolutely magical. The story is written by Robert Sherman, who is a very well-established writer. He's done a lot of stuff for Big Finish. He wrote the Dalek episode for Christopher Eccleston's Doctor Who. And the sound design, the music, the direction, the acting, everything about this... It's just wonderful, wonderful Christmas listening. I can't recommend this enough. So with that pre-judgment, Dr. Exton, what do you think? Actually, I have to agree with most of that. I have always said that when Big Finish get things right, they really get it right. And this is a perfect example of this. Okay, it is a ripoff of Sapphire and Steel. But actually, it's a much more effective and well-written and well-produced ripoff of Sapphire and Steel than any of their actual Sapphire and Steel stuff, which we're probably not going to review because they were fucking awful. I won't be rushing to them, I've got to say. They're really bad. This is as close to a, a good Sapphire and Steel as Big Finish ever get. It's a really nice ghost story for Christmas. It has a tip of the hat to... The Stone Tape, the the classic Nigel Neal Christmas ghost story without actually ripping it off or that aspect making a a massive amount of sense. I've always enjoyed The Chimes of Midnight. Uh, It's it's a Charlie Pollard story and I always found her quite irritating, to be honest, because it's it's all a bit Middle England jolly hockey sticks. Ra ra ra. Although, to be fair, she was supposed to be. Yeah, and that is no disrespect to India Fisher. She puts in a good performance. She puts in a well-nuanced performance. I just find the setting a little old-fashioned and cliched. It is set in 1906. Yeah, still cliched. But it's a really nicely done story. Well portrayed. The plot around a time loop, that can get really dull really quickly. And this doesn't. The bits where you're you're going through the time loop and you're establishing the fact that you're going through through the time loop, the actors really speed up and push over their lines because you recognise what the lines are going to be and they're there to enforce the fact that it's a time loop. So the director doesn't waste time with them. Uh, It's a really nicely done way of managing a time loop, which is something that can generally be very dull and in this case isn't. The whole trauma causing memory in the the walls of a house, again, pure Nigel Neal, pure the stone tape. It's not an original idea, but it's given quite an original and nice treatment because it goes one step further and says, if you throw enough emotion at this, could it actually become sentient? I loved that aspect of it um, because at the time, I'm not familiar with any of the things that you have just listed, or I wasn't at the time. So when I was listening to this, there was no hint of what was going to come. 
And then as time goes on, this character that's not been seen yet, who is this Edward Grove? And then it's revealed that that is the name of the house. And eventually it possesses one of the characters and, and they start having a discourse in the, in the butler's parlour. For someone like yourself who knows this sort of stuff inside out, I suspect that you'd already seen this coming. For me, it was a wonderful, lovely surprise. All the stuff that is really obvious is addressed like, can we go outside? Right, well, let's just open the door and go outside the house. That is stopped. Well, let's just go upstairs into the main living quarters. That is stopped. So it's not even as if, let's just get in the TARDIS, let's just fly away from this. They even try that at one point and take the house with them. So all the escape routes that would be logical plot holes are all filled in. And it has to be said, what I consider to be the best ever Doctor Who cliffhanger occurs at the end of episode two. What's all the fuss about? What's going on? What time does it say now? 11.32. You must listen to me, all of you. We must all stay together in this room. Doctor, the household has duties. It'll soon be midnight. Even more reason we must return to work. His Lordship will want to toast Christmas Day with champagne. Mary, get the glasses. Right away, sir. No, Mary, you must stay here. 11.39. All of you, please, there will be another murder committed at midnight. For your safety's sake, we must be together. Another murder? How do you deduce that, Doctor? Both deaths took place exactly on the hour, exactly as the chimes struck. There's only been one death. What? Mrs. Badley's suicide with a plum pudding. 11.44. Doctor, it's going wild. What about Edith? You must remember Edith. Edith? There's no Edith here. A scullery maid, you must remember. 11.49. Doctor! Mary here is our scullery maid. That's right. I'm nothing. I'm nobody. Doctor, the second hand is just a blur. I can hardly see it. This is ridiculous. Staff, return to your duties. At once, Mr. Shaughnessy. Yes. No, come back. We must be together when whatever happens, happens. 11.54. 11.55. Any one of us could be next. Don't you understand? It could be any one of us. 58, 59, Doctor! No! Best ever Doctor Who cliffhanger? Not sure. I'm sure there's something from proper Doctor Who that will... <laughs> You're a cruel bastard. <laughs> Give me an example off the top of your head. Go on. Caves of Androzani 1. That got me. Caves of Androzani 3 is pretty bloody good. Robots of Death 2. The sand miners start sinking. That is absolutely brilliant. I'm not disputing the... Actually, yeah, I can see where you're going with that. I think, in itself, a cliffhanger isn't so much what the cliff... You know that they're going to get out of it, whatever it is. It doesn't matter. Hmm. It's how it's actually realised. And in this case, the music, the pacing, the acting, the sound design is just all, pow, ramping towards scream end credits. Now, this could have been done in any number of boring ways. And don't get me wrong, cliffhangers are not Big Finish's strong point on the whole. In the classic series in particular, there would be the crescendo of music, the dramatic last line, sting, end credits. Big Finish generally, it's about the only area where I think they really let themselves down, that the end of episodes just sort of happen. This is not one of those moments. Yeah, and the end of episodes happen because they recognise that it's going to be listened to in one big swoop rather than weekly episode by weekly episode as Doctor Who was originally watched. Yeah, but that's not an excuse. If you're trying to emulate something, 
a four-part serial, you emulate it. You don't think, well, they're going to listen to the next part in another 30 seconds. It doesn't really matter. It shouldn't be like that. Because I, when I first started buying the monthly range of Doctor Who stories, I did listen to them week by week. It was my Monday night treat, and I loved it. I wanted to be what happens next. And for a lot of the time in those early days, I really was. I, I loved some of the cliffhangers in those early days. But as time's worn on, they've sort of forgotten how to do them. Where Doctor Who's concerned, that would be my, my biggest sort of thing. I know you have other far more pointed criticisms. Uh do I have more pointed criticisms? I, I think the important thing that I think in terms of Big Finish is they're competing with professionally produced audio drama. And I think there is an argument to say that they are now professionally produced audio drama. I should think after 25 years, yeah, they are. They do know I, what they're doing, and it's very good quality stuff. I think that I, I don't think the time scale is important. To be perfectly honest, you can have professionally produced stuff that has been there for six months and sounds fantastic, and you can look at long cap media for that. You can have stuff that has been going on for years and years and years and years and years and still sounds shite. Thing about Big Finish, they know they've got a captive market. It's a fair point. They could stick Doctor Who on Sarah Sutton reading the phone book and people would still buy it. I'd love to disagree with that, but I can't really. Yeah, it would be new range, new drama, Nissa talks, and people would buy it. There are just certain things, and the cliffhangers is the only thing that's really sort of niggled at me over the years, that if you don't get the cliffhangers right, there's no hook to really draw you into the next episode. You need something. Whether you're listening to them all at once or episodically, you need something that when that end theme music kicks in, it drags you back. And with all of the episodes of Chimes of Midnight, particularly episode two, I just absolutely adore that as a hook. I think the same can be said of Master, which was about 20 releases later in the range. And Master is, is, it, what is it, a four or five hander. It's a very small cast in a very small location, one location, one house. In itself, it could have been done in a very boring way. But the writing, the way it was directed, the way it was sound designed, it all just came to life and became one of the best things that Big Finish have ever done. But it could have been done much less dynamically if the cliffhangers hadn't been written and designed. I mean, it's the design, really, because the writers will all have a, in their head an image of how a cliffhanger should sound. Whether that's how it actually sounds when it makes its CD or download is a different matter. But it's the direction and sound design. And in this case, as far as I'm concerned, it's spot on. Yes, and I, I think there are a lot of things that come together here to work very, very well together. So, yeah, direction, sound design, acting, the writing is very good, and time loops are a difficult thing to write. Um, because, agreed, because you need to have a the, really firm grasp of it. Yeah, and the thing about time loops, they can get really dull really quickly. Whoever's written Chimes at Midnight has recognised this the time loop bits are really rushed through to the point where you it almost sounds as though the action has been speeded up and none of it is boring. 
Oh, absolutely not. No way. None of this story at all is boring. Conversely, this was released in February of 2002. So it wasn't even a Christmas release. Which is really weird. It is. Looking back, it is. Because this is as Christmassy as it gets. As far as I'm concerned, this beats the pants off any of the Christmas specials that we've had on television. Possibly with the exception of A Christmas Carol, which I am quite fond of. I love Voyage of the Damned. Yeah, but is it a Christmas special, really? Yes, absolutely, because Christmas was always disaster movies. It's a very, very Christmassy thing. Oh, fair enough. Yep. Whereas I absolutely love all that Victoriana, Edwardian, Dickensian Christmas. That will always draw me in. And this is pretty much the epitome of that. But we are coming at Christmas from two very, very different angles. I was brought up with it. You weren't really, were you? Oh, uh, the whole Christianity sky dotty. Uh, yes. Sky Doddy, <laughs> Sky Daddy thing. No, not the way I was raised. I think really though, it is time to rate this in eat your worms. This is the song that never ends. It goes on and on, my friends. As a Doctor Who story, it's good. It's it's a bit sort of Warriors Gate-ish. It's very, very sapphire and steel. And that I'm not sure it's really good because it's a Doctor Who story. Paul McGann is superb. I'm not sure that India Fisher actually sells this. She's never really anything other than jolly hockey sticks and nothing more. I love this story. I think it works brilliantly well. I think that it's well written. It's well produced. It sounds fantastic. There's a really good atmosphere to it. It's a 10 out of 10 for me. Good grief. Now, that does surprise me. I mean, without any surprise, it's a 10 out of 10 for me as well. I absolutely adore this. There's not a bad word I've got to say about it. I do get where you're coming from with the India Fisher thing. And if you're not intimately familiar with the Charlie Pollard arc, diving in or taking the odd one here and there, yes, I can see how that might be vaguely sort of irritating jolly hockey sticks, but it's entirely in keeping with the character. This came bang in the middle of a story arc where basically time was unravelling around Charlie as a result of what happened in the very first Eighth Doctor story with Charlie. So it's all which sort of... kind of irritates me, to be perfectly honest. Because if you suddenly do the whole time is unraveling because I saved somebody who should have died, that means that by the time you're hitting season two, time should be unraveling, and by the time you're hitting season three, we shouldn't have the multiverse. It's a really nice idea of doing a show. It's a really nice idea for a TV series, but it kind of works against Doctor Who. I'm with you, but it's just one of those many times where don't pick the threads too hard because uh, it doesn't really stand up to a lot of scrutiny. And as we've covered... Whereas it should. Well, it should, but a lot. It really should. They make a big deal about, certainly in the early days of Big Finish, they made a huge deal about the fact that it was fan-produced and so it should be done properly. You either do it properly or you don't. It's a fair point, but as you've pointed out before, none of the physics of classic Doctor Who make a lot of sense. And if you pick the threads, even of modern Doctor Who, really a lot of that does come unstuck. And 
I think the modern way of thinking is, uh, even with something like canon, we're not going to let canonicity get in the way of a good story. So with Doctor Um, Who, it's a bit of a movable feast, really. And canonicity, they never have. There have been better efforts made in recent years. It's all been splashed to the four winds with the (laughs) Chibnall era. But But by and large... Think about the number of explanations there are in terms of... um, Atlantis? Yeah. And they've not taken notice of, this is what canon was five years ago, but they have taken notice of, this is what will fit in well and produce a good and consistent story now. Whereas you've got something like Nightmare in Silver, it's, this is a fun idea I've had that ignores what's gone on before and will basically produce something that looks like the Borg, but ignore what previous history is. But there are great whacking holes, time-wise, plot-wise. Certainly, you know, so if you're going to unravel the universe, that would have happened many, many times in classic Doctor Who. Let's take something like the uh, the Terraleptal pod in The Visitation. There was a great deal made at the end when the Doctor presents um, Richard Mace with some sort of electronic gadget completely ignoring the fact that they'd left a huge spaceship partially buried in the middle of a wood. So, again, Doctor Who, it's guilty of this throughout its run. Don't pick too many holes. You have met fans, haven't you? One or two when I can't avoid it. So, it's time to recommend something else. What are we listening to as podcast of the week? What I would like to recommend for this month is an absolutely fantastic and long-running Doctor Who podcast called Verity. Okay, tell me more. It is a group of women fans who very intelligently and insightfully review episodes of classic who new who they'll do the occasional fun episode like ideal companions and and things like that they're very clever they're very insightful there's a bit of a push towards the fact that it's a a woman-centric podcast and it is a woman-centric podcast all of the presenters are female I don't actually think that's as important as the fact that it's a really well-produced, thoughtful, intelligent podcast. And yes, it's great that there are women voices in fandom that are getting, uh, it's a bit disingenuous to say they're getting noticed because these are very well known within fandom and very well respected for their work and and for their writing and for their reviews. It's just really good and it's really fun. And on that note, I shall sign us off. Next month, we shall be back with, oh, what's going to be an absolute delight. It's a Radio 4 series called Cabin Pressure, starring Benedict Cumberbatch, Roger Allen, Stephanie Cole and John Finnamore, who is also the writer This is just an absolute joy, which I only discovered through Dr. Exton about two years ago. Really? 
It's only that. Yep, it is. We discussed it, or you've given me recordings of it years ago, years and years ago, but I've never listened to. And it's only within the past two years that I've properly sat down and digested this. Ah, right, because you ignore most of the things I recommend. Well, there are other things to sort of research in our archive journey, but this is one of those things that absolutely blew me away. I don't think it's giving away too many spoilers to know what my review of this is going to be like, but do tune in next month, boys and girls. That's what we're going to be doing. Until then, thank you very much for listening. hope you've enjoyed our ramblings. Have a lovely Christmas. We'll see you in the new year. Merry Christmas. Goodbye now. The Archive of Audio Antiquities featured Simon Exton and Ken Moss. And the announcer was Jenny at Blue Box 99. All featured soundtracks are the property of their respective producers and no infringement of copyright is intended. Title music was by Edward White and the programme was produced by Maverick Productions. For more information, please visit maverickproductionsuk.blogspot.com or find us on social media.